to the sun. I want that to be resonating in your minds because this past weekend we had about 100 people go up to Big Cedar and some of them are still there in that retreat mode and we looked to the Savior in our marriages. And I know that may seem a little bit a little bit out of character. I thought we were talking about a marriage retreat and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's letting our life be so in line with our Savior, even to the point of our marriage. This month of February is really a month at Grace Point where we focus on our families. Now, every day is a focus on our family, but this is an equipping month, starting off by just going into a deep dive into what is a healthy family. What does a healthy marriage look like? Healthy marriage hopefully will have produce healthy children. And what does that look like? And Ron Deal, who's with us today, shared this weekend with us, and he'll be sharing in our message today, not about the healthy family being a perfect family, but actually how God can use an imperfect family. Great message. Get ready for a survey through the scriptures uh, here in just a few moments. But at the same time, we had a hundred and something adults up in uh, Branson at Big Cedar on this retreat. We had our children's ministry, kids' men ministry that was in Dallas. And our children, our elementary children, were at a camp there. And it was an incredible time for them to just be in the Word. And what they asked us to pray for was no distractions, that God would do a work in them that would not be propped up by even the church or even by their moms and dads, but they would own their faith. We took time and we prayed for them. This is a month of equipping our families. At the end of this month, we're going to be praying, we're going to be looking at, we're going to all be jumping in and diving in and serving our student ministry with one weekend. This is a month of helping our families be equipped for life, be equipped in the faith. We even took some time and one of the resources that uh, that Family Life Today produced is, our Family Life produced is how to pray for your husband, how to pray for your wife. If you're in a blended family, how to pray for your blended family. Because Ron, who's who's one of our speaker, who's our speaker today, he's been married over 30 years, but if if it has three sons, and if you know anything about the blended family, you probably learned it from. Ron and how to survive in the blended family, how to thrive in his blended family. He is the expert on it. I've recommended his books before I even knew him. And it was Brad Douse who went to one of his conferences and said, hey, we've got to get him here. And we had him here and we're having him back again. So we're glad to be able to take some time and pray over our families. We've been talking about fuel for several weeks. Well, let's add fuel to our family by praying over our families. We're going to do that now. I want you to think about your family. Your unique family situation. You know, it could be that, hey, I'm alone and I want a family. And we're praying for that other person in your life. It could be that you are in a season of life where you're launching your children into the world. And you want to pray for your children. They launch well. I talked to two parents just before coming in here. They're launching their boys. We're launching our kids. We're in that season of life. We're just praying for each other, praying for our kids. Or maybe you're in that season where you're just trying to survive your kids and help them survive. How can we pray for you? Let us know how we can pray for you. Those little cards in the seat pocket in front of you, those are prayer cards. Just fill them out, dropping them in the basket a little bit later on. We're going to take time right now, though, to pray. And I want to say thank you, though, to the families of Grace Point Church who, on a consistent, generous basis, give to Grace Point. 
Because I can tell you what, you helped a number of families, six that I can count up, get scholarships to go up to have their marriage poured into this past weekend. And I know we sent kids to camp on scholarships. And I know we're going to have one weekend that is heavily subsidized. We couldn't do any of this without you. We couldn't affect the families without your giving. So thank you for that. So let's take a moment. Let's pray together. You got that, that, that heaviness, that thing on your mind you're praying for? You lift it up right now as I voice our prayer. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to just bring our families to you. Lord, we didn't invent the family, you did. We might have messed up the family in all of our imperfections, but Lord, you're constantly redeeming it and making it whole. And Lord, there's things that right now are heavy on our hearts for our families. It could be even a family member that's not in this room right now, who's not walking with you right now. Could be our children who are launching out. We don't know where they're at right now. We don't know what's going on right now. Could be a sickness in our family. Could be maybe a new child, a new baby that's being born or is right now in the womb. Lord, I would just pray as that child is fearfully and wonderfully made by you, that child will grow up and be in a church like Grace Point that loves the family, equips family, activates and arms our families well. Lord, uh, would you be with us in this time? Be with Ron as he comes and shares from his years of experience, but also just from his heart. From his training as a therapist, but also from his own marriage. He just gets real with us. Lord, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you for even the opportunity to give financially so that other families could see life change in their own marriage. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, this is my second time here at Grace Church. I was here about three years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it, so thank you for having me back. We had a good time this weekend, spending some time talking about marriage and uh, putting on the humility of Christ and applying it into our uh, marriages so that he can grow us up, because that's what he's always after, is growing us up into looking more and more like him. Uh, Mike mentioned that I work a lot with blended families. I want to just mention to everybody who's here today, in case you know anybody in a blended family, care for anybody in a step family situation, or maybe you yourself find your self in that sort of a situation. We have an event coming up in April on the 21st. This is a live stream event called Blended and Blessed. Now here's the really cool thing about this. We're going to be live in Charlotte, North Carolina with a number of speakers and a worship team and a number of kind of uh, uh, fun events for the day, this one day Saturday event. But you could be anywhere in the world and participate in this. You can watch it on your mobile phone. You can sit down with a laptop in your living room. You can gather with a group of people. I think perhaps some people at this church are going to try to get a gathering just to come together and experience the day together. It's teaching and training and encouragement for couples in blended families. So blended and blessed, you can learn more about it online if you're interested in that. 
I work for Family Life. Family Life um, is based in Little Rock, Arkansas. We've been there for 40 years. And many people are not familiar with who Family Life is, but we do marriage and family training and teaching. In about a week, we're getting on a boat and going on the Family Life marriage cruise where we'll take about 3,000 people and take over the entire boat and uh, spend the whole week just worshiping God and talking about how we can enrich our marriages. We have a new Art of Parenting video curriculum coming out this spring with a movie called Like Arrows. We're producing material all the time. We have a national radio broadcast. I spend a lot of time talking and teaching, and every day I walk into a building with about 300 people in it who are ministering in over 100 countries around the world, and we're all trying to enrich families and marriages and do a better job as parents. And I got to tell you my secret. It scares me to death to walk into that place. On a fairly regular basis, I am reminded of how inadequate I am as a husband, as a father, how imperfect my own family is. And this is what I do day in and day out. And I'm surrounded by people who are committed to Christian marriage and family. I'm constantly reminded of the ideal, what God created, what he designed, what he wants for us, what he hopes for us, and what my family isn't. Can I get an amen from anybody in the room? And it's intimidating. I mean, it really is. But I have good news for all of us this morning. I've given up on trying to match that perfect ideal scenario. And it's not because I've decided I'm never going to obtain it. Well, that, that's part of it. <laughs> but it's actually, I've learned that I don't have to obtain it. And what I want to share with you this morning is a message that I think screams out of Scripture, one that we've read many times, you know, we've kind of read the stories over and over, but we've never really thought about what the, what the, what the meta-narrative of all of these family stories is. And I want to just want to share with you this morning what I think it is, and it's good news for all, for all of us. Let's start with the first family, Adam and Eve, right? Perfect scenario, perfect environment, perfect climate. How long does that last? <laughs> Not long. They blew it for all of us. Thank you very much. Then they become parents, and they have two kids, Cain and Abel. Now, you thought the sibling rivalry was bad in your house, <laughs> all right? One of them ended up dead. It's, your house is not nearly as bad as the very first family, okay? Cain ends up with conduct disorder, right? We could diagnose him, couldn't we, Brad, right? We could diagnose this kid. He kills his brother. This is not a good start to the family that God designed. Well, let's just fast forward a little bit. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Just skip in your head to the story of Abraham. As a matter of fact, um, God identifies himself with the family of Abraham through a phrase that he uses over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's actually used in the New Testament as well. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm the God who's establishing these people and through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on and on and on, eventually comes the Messiah. Now, I remember at one point in my life sitting down with my Bible and thinking, okay, if you want to find a model family, this ought to be it, because Jesus comes from these people. But let's just do a quick little survey of family life in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is married to Sarah. They don't have any children yet. God has promised them a child. As a matter of fact, it's not just any child. This is going to be the seed through which all nations are going to be blessed. Eventually, Christ is going to come from them. But, uh, you know, so far she hasn't gotten pregnant. 
Uh, back up a little bit. There's this paranoia, I think, going on in the back of Sarah's mind about her marriage and how important she is. What do I mean by that? Well, on two occasions, Abraham and Sarah were traveling through the land, and apparently Sarah is so gorgeous, Abraham's worried that whoever the ruler is of the land, in one case it's Pharaoh, and in another case it's a guy named Abimelech in a different land, that, that Pharaoh will kill Abraham to get to Sarah. Sarah must be gorgeous, all right? So Abraham comes up with this little lie. He says, let's just tell him you're my sister. Ladies, I have a question for you. Does this engender warm fuzzies in a woman's heart when her husband lies about her and says, oh, no, no, she's not mine. You can have her. <laughs> she's single. I don't think that engenders trust in a woman's heart. I don't think that helps her to feel great about who she is and her standing with her husband. But Abraham does that not once, but twice. Now, keep that in the back of your mind because they've been promised a child, but Sarah doesn't get pregnant. So she comes up with this great idea. I know, Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, kind of make her wife number two. We'll have a child through her. Okay, pause. That's weird. Anybody? Hello? Like any lady in here offering that to your husband lately? I don't think so. I don't get it. But, you know, it was a common practice. So we'll have a child through her. Abraham, who, who knows better, basically in a moment, again, of distrust in God, looking out for himself, just says, okay, takes wife number two. That's Hagar. Sure enough, she gets pregnant. This is Sarah's idea. And as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, she realizes she's not loved. She's not really wanted by her husband, Abraham, but she now realizes that she's giving him a child. And that was uh, a woman's crown in that day. Because the ancient, in ancient times, they believed that a husband lived on through his children, in particular as a son, because it would carry the name forward. And so Hagar is going to have a boy. She's going to get to offer this to her husband. So she starts flaunting that in front of Sarah. Ha ha, I can have a baby. You can have one. Well, Sarah doesn't like it. So Hagar's pregnant out to here. Sarah comes into her husband and says, all right, I want her out. I want that woman out of our household. I'm not dealing with this anymore. There's a lot of rivalry going on. Abraham, again, doesn't know what to do, doesn't act in faith. And so he says, okay, whatever you want to do, honey. And so she chases Hagar, pregnant out to here, out into the wilderness. She has nowhere to live, no provision. She and the baby are going to die. But God has a plan. So he brings her back and then tells Abraham, no, 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 you take care of her. But is this rivalry over? Is it fixed? No, it's not. How do we know? Because eventually Sarah does get pregnant. She does have her own son. His name is Isaac. But Ishmael, his older half-brother, and Isaac, they have a rivalry going because their mamas had a rivalry going. And so on the day they're throwing a little party for Isaac, the new baby, in comes in his half-brother, starts making fun of Isaac the same way that his mom made fun of Isaac's mom. And we have same song, second verse. Sarah doesn't like what's going on, comes to her husband and says, I want him out. She tries to get in the way of her husband Abraham and his son Ishmael. She tries to marginalize the two of them. Never a good idea. This is the original family of promise. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac grows up. He marries a, a woman named Rebecca. Does this rivalry thing carry on to the next generation? As family patterns go, yes, it does. How do we know? Because they have two kids, Esau and Jacob. But you know them as Jacob and Esau. Why do you know them in that order? Esau is the older one. Well, because of what happens. You see, mom, Rebecca, her favorite child is Isaac, the second born. It comes time. Dad is old. It's time for him to give the blessing to the oldest male son. That would be Esau. And so uh, he is preparing himself to do that. You got The backstory story is Esau... Um, it, 
excuse me, Isaac, the, the, the father, is old. He can't see well, can't hear very well. Mom comes up with this little plan. Esau is out hunting. He's going to kill something, bring it home, prepare dinner for his father, and then his father is going to give him this blessing, which is like a prophetic word over his life. But mom, in the meantime, says, while Esau is out hunting, hey, buddy, come here. Isaac, uh, you know, pulls her younger son, Jacob, and says, listen, I got a plan. I'll prepare dinner for your dad. You go put on your brother's clothes. Put on some goat skin on your arm because your brother's hairy and you're not. Go in and you can fool dad. He'll think you are Esau. He'll give you the blessing. Now, just do the math for a second here, ladies. This, moms, this is a woman uh, colluding with her youngest son against both her husband and her oldest son. Is this horribly dysfunctional or what? Well, the plan works. They steal the blessing. This prophetic word gets passed to Jacob. That's why we know them as Jacob and Esau, because he's the one who's really going to carry forward the family name. Esau, in the meantime, comes back, and he is hopping mad about this because that was his blessing to get. And he says, Dad, where's my blessing? And Dad says, I'm sorry, I only have one blessing to give, and your son got it. Excuse me, your brother got it. Now you're going to have to follow him. Well, as you can imagine, Esau's really mad, and so he says, I'm going to kill you, and so he's going he's to try to hurt Jacob, but Jacob doesn't know what to do, so he runs to mommy and says, now what, now what, now what? You imagine that little conversation, and mom says, uh, 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 wait, wait, I know. Run to my brother's house. Your uncle Laban lives a long ways off from here. Just go, and we'll wait for your brother to calm down, and you can come home. Well, I keep thinking, okay, this family of promise isn't so promising. You know, it's pretty dysfunctional. It's got to get better at some point. Well, let's just carry the story forward. So Jacob flees, goes to Uncle Laban's house. He lives a long ways off. By the way, that's important to the story, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. And he goes to work for his Uncle Laban because he's got nothing better to do but to wait for his brother to calm down so he can go home. In the meantime, he's working for his Uncle Laban, and Uncle Laban comes to him one day, says, my, you're a fine worker. How am I going to pay you for all the good stuff you're doing around here for us? Well, as a matter of fact, Uncle Laban, have you seen your daughter, Rachel? Wow, she is smoking hot. By the way, that's the Hebrew translated directly into the English. She is smoking hot, and I think I would like to marry her. Uh, Uncle Laban says, yeah, okay, tell you what, you work for me seven years, and that will be the equivalent of a bride price, and then you can have her hand in marriage. Now, everybody just pause for a second and do the math on this one. He's fallen in love with his cousin. This is his uncle's daughter. Is that weird or What? I know. I mean, the only redeeming part of the story is that they lived a long ways off, so we could say she was a distant cousin. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying, you know? It's weird. So seven years go by, and he's going to marry his cousin, Rachel. Now, now here's the backstory of this one. Uh, Rachel's the number two daughter in the family. There is an older daughter. Her name is Leah, but guys, there's just quite a difference between Leah and Rachel, all right? The Bible is pretty clear about this. Uh, 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 about Rachel, the beautiful one. The Bible says she was beautiful and lovely in form. That's what it says. And about Leah, the older one, it says she has weak eyes, which means she has a really good personality, if you know what I mean. I mean, Rachel's name means you, like a lamb, like a precious, beautiful, spotless lamb. And Leah's name means cow. I'm I'm not making it up. That's what it says. 
Nobody wanted to marry Leah. Nobody wants her at all. And so understand, the younger sister's getting married before the older one. Seven years go by. It comes time for a wedding. Now comes what I like to call the what goes around comes around story in the Bible because Uncle Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob. Jacob earlier pulled a fast one on his brother and his dad, and now what goes around comes around because Uncle Laban sneaks Leah in as the bride during the wedding. The older sister Leah, the cow that nobody wants, is the bride. And Jacob doesn't realize this. How does he not realize this? I don't know. She must have had a pretty thick veil. That's the only thing I can figure out. He has no idea he's marrying the wrong woman. The story gets better. They get married. They go and they consummate the marriage. He still doesn't know it's not Rachel. Can you believe that? She kept the veil on. All right, that's all I know to say. That and a whole lot of alcohol. And Jacob has no understanding what has just transpired. Until the next morning when he rolls over and he wakes up and he's laying next to a cow. Where'd you come from? Can you imagine that moment? Like, what, 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 what just happened? He runs to Uncle Laban. Hey, 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 I thought we had a deal. Seven years, I worked. Rachel's hand. Oh, I'm sorry, didn't we tell you? It's not our custom here to marry off the younger one before the older one. So we put the older one in there for you. I'm sorry. Tally-ho, good luck with all that. Well, what do I have to do to marry Rachel? Give me another seven. Odds are within a couple of weeks, he was able to marry Rachel, but he now owed his father-in-law seven years. Fourteen years total for Rachel's hand in marriage. Surely this story's got to get better. This is weird stuff. This is the family of promise for crying. Jesus is coming out of this. Well, the story gets worse, not better. What do you mean it gets worse? Well, Leah... Bless her heart, has nothing. She's unwanted. Nobody wants her there. You know, can you imagine being married to somebody and they didn't want you, clearly didn't want you? Like, what do you have? Nothing. But God has grace on her. He gives her a child. At least she is able to carry forth the family's name. That was the woman's crown. And so Leah gets pregnant. Rachel, the favored one, she doesn't have any kids. She's barren for whatever reason. But Leah has a child. And so she gives her husband, a, a, and it's a son, which carries forth the family name, which is like really good news for her. And so she gives him this awesome name, Reuben. Isn't that cool? It's like a cool name, Reuben. What does it mean? Misery. She named her son Misery. And she even makes a statement, because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She gets pregnant again. She has a second son. She names him Simeon, which means one who hears. And she makes the statement, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved. How would you like to walk around with that name as a testimony to the weirdness and dysfunction of your family? Leah gets pregnant again. She has a third son. She names him Levi, which means attached. And she makes the statement, now my husband will be attached to me. Not to be outdone, Rachel, the favored wife who's barren, not able to have a son, she goes, wait, what am I going to do? She's having all the kids. She's going to be the favored one. I've got to do something about this. Wait, I got an idea. I got a maidservant, Bilhah. I could give her to my husband. Well, I could have a child through her and I could name it. That's a good idea. Where did I get that? Oh, yeah, Grandma did that. So didn't work for Grandma. Why should it work for her? So Bilhah becomes wife number three, if you're keeping track. And Bilhah, sure enough, gets pregnant. And Rachel gets to name the first one. And it's a boy. And she gives him the name Dan, which means vindication. And she says, God has vindicated me, implied, against my sister. 
Bilhah has a second son. Rachel gets to name him Naphtali, which means struggle. I have won a great struggle with my sister. Oh, it's on, girls. You know what I'm talking about? Leah goes, I'm not going to be outdone. I got a maidservant. Zilpah is going to be wife number four, if you're keeping track. And Zilpah, sure enough, gets pregnant. And Leah gets to name him. And the first one's name is Gad, which means good fortune. Gad, good fortune, which is why today we kind of say Egad when we have bad fortune. Okay, I made that up. And then Asher, Asher comes and she names him happy because she's not. She's miserable. And the wives have this competition thing going. And it's all about finding the love and finding the connection and being the favored one. And Rachel over here, the favored wife, is not having any kids. Until one day when Rachel finally gets pregnant. Favorite wife has a favorite son. She gives him a name. Joseph. And he never has to empty the trash, clean out the stalls or mow the yard or empty the dishwasher. Favorite son grows up being cherished by his father. And one day he comes home at the age of 17 with a coat. And that is the straw that broke the camel's back. His brothers grew up in a home where they were not wanted, not favored. Their mothers are not wanted, not favored. And they are sick and tired of this. That's it. He's dead. This is the family of promise. Nah, I got a better idea. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. They'll chew him up and use him up. And when he's 110, they'll kill him. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. We'll tell dad he's dead. We'll just watch and laugh. This is the family of promise. Well, I keep reading in my Bible, keep flipping, like looking for families that live up to God's ideal plan, right? And you you flip a few chapters and uh, books in the Old Testament and you come to this guy named David who's called a man after God's own heart but whose family, let's remember, includes a premeditated murder to cover an affair, an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, a son who says, oh, dad can be sexually disgraceful. I'll do that too. He goes and he rapes his half-sister only to have another half-brother of him hunt him down in revenge of the sister and kill him. Are you feeling any better about your home right about now? Like maybe things are bad, but not that bad. Okay, I got a question for you. Why in the world would God leave us a living testimony of his people when they're a mess? Why would the God of the universe say, you know what? Here's the design for the home. Now, let me show you my people. They can't do it. I mean, if, if you're trying to make an impression, you know, you might want to just show everybody how what your plan is works and how it just makes life wonderful for everybody. It's not what happens. What's the point of that? I remember one day stopping and pausing and realizing, oh, wait, 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 wait. I, oh, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I thought that was about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think it's about God. I think it's about what he does in people in spite of who they are. Most of the people we've just talked about are in Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith hall of fame kind of chapter that we talk about, right? By faith, Abraham, da-da-da-da, by faith, Jacob, da-da-da-da, by faith. They're all in there. Apparently, you can be faithful and really imperfect. Uh, Apparently, you can walk with God and it be counted as righteousness and be really imperfect as an individual 
as a husband or wife, as a child, as a parent. Apparently, you can have a lot of dysfunction and somehow still walk with God. I was doing a step family conference one time and a guy ran up to me and he goes, what do I do about the D and the R right here on the front of my head? A D and the R. And of course, I took a good long look and I didn't see any D and R on his forehead. So I said, all right, help me out, dude. You know, what, what does that mean? He goes, divorced and remarried. I'm divorced and remarried. Everybody knows that about me. I left my first wife. I hurt my her. I hurt my kids. I left in a place of rebellion. I walked away from the Lord and them. And, and in the meantime, I was convicted of my sin and I've come back to the Lord. But what's done is done. And I married another woman, and we now have a stepfamily. We're here at your conference, but I'm living in this shame. I'm living, everybody knows this about me. And he references the story of the scarlet letter, the woman who committed adultery, and they put a big A on her clothes, and everywhere she went, everybody said, oh, that's her, that's the adulteress. He goes, I feel like when I walk into this place, I got a big D and a big R in here, and I just feel like I don't belong. I'll tell you what I said to the guy in just a second, but I want to ask you a question real quick before we go that. I'm wondering what kind of tattoos you came in here with. may not be in a D and an R stamped on your forehead, but maybe it's something else. Maybe your marriage is teetering. Maybe you hurt a friend recently. Maybe you're an adult person who hasn't really treated family members well. Maybe you grew up in a home that alcoholism and dysfunction and that's the legacy you've been trying to get away from an abusive environment or maybe you were given a heritage of irresponsibility and neglect or maybe you got pornography and you're struggling with that and it's so insidious you just want to get away from it and it's so difficult or maybe you've been divorced or maybe you had a child out of wedlock or maybe you smoked pot in college and you inhaled or maybe you're just one of those Maybe you're just one of those normal families that has bad parenting days and regret over stuff that's happened and you worry about your kids and you have days where your marriage just isn't great. Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's not so wonderful and you're just going, I don't know what to do. Maybe you got a mother who's driving you crazy. And you walk in here and you just feel unworthy. Like you sit down and everybody else seems to be looking so good and they're dressed and everybody's looking fine and you're just inside, you know how messed up your life is. You can't get rid of the tattoos. So I looked at this guy and I said, okay, I get it. DNR means divorced and remarried. I said, but if you understand God's economy and how he works in us in spite of us, I think maybe DNR means delivered and redeemed. Is it possible that that's what it means now? Is it possible that it's not about you and what you can do and how well you perform? You're not a second-class Christian. You're not unworthy because there's no such thing as a first-class Christian. Everybody's a second-class Christian. We're all pretty even when it comes to that, right? We're all unworthy of being in this place. That's the glory of it. And somehow we take on this pressure that we got to finally earn it or we got to live up to it and everybody else looks pristine and somehow I've got to join them in that. No, you don't. Let's get practical. What do I want you to do with this truth that we're talking about here today? Number one, I want you to quit 
worrying about feeling imperfect. Now, I know that just sounds kind of funny, but I just want you to rest in this fact. You're not perfect, and by the way, your secret's out. I know you think you've hidden it really, really well, but we already know. (laughs) And the funny thing is, everybody's walking around feeling like they're holding that secret. And we sit down and we get, we're right next to other people day in and day out on Sunday morning. You're sitting around people in front of you, they're behind you, you get to know them a little bit, and they're imperfect and you're imperfect and everybody is hiding and pretending. Nobody acknowledges that because we just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to show our tattoos. And we get isolated from one another. And the church can't be the church when you're isolated from one another. Look around, everybody. Everybody in here is imperfect. And if we would just quit worrying about that and set aside our shame for a few minutes and talk about our imperfections, here's what you would find. Other people will go, yeah, me too. This past weekend, talking about marriage, I shared a whole lot about my journey and our marriage and some really dumb stuff that I've done throughout our journey and some things I've had to wake up to about me. And you know what I find when I do that? As I travel around the country, people come to me and go, yeah, me too. All of a sudden, they feel the freedom to be real with who they are just simply because I took the first step. There's a room full of people in here. You could be family with one another. You could have, you could have fellow journeymen with one another and you could really get down to life and be open and transparent about it if somebody would just go first and we'd just quit worrying about being imperfect what you'd find is that you are not alone lesson number two let god redeem your story let god redeem your story this is really great story in john chapter four i love this story we don't have time to read it jesus is at the well maybe you've heard it before let me just give you the 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 quick sketch of the story He's going to have a dialogue with a woman. It's in the middle of the day. It's about noon. She's there all by herself. The backstory to that, you've heard uh, preachers talk about this before. She's probably there in the middle of the day because of her lifestyle, because of some choices that she's made. Uh, most of the women would go out to the well and you know, walk out of town a great distance and get jars full of water and carry them back. They would do that when it was cooler in the day, early in the morning or late in the evening, but they didn't do it at noon. That's the hottest part of the day. That's when it's hard to carry all that water and do all that work. But she's there all by herself, probably because of her lifestyle. She's probably been told by the elders of the community, no, 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 you can't go with the other women. We don't want you infecting them. So Jesus meets this woman at a well. He's there all by himself. And he says to her, would you give me a drink? Now, this little dialogue, watch the flow of the dialogue. He's going to keep pointing her to spiritual water, living water, but she doesn't get it. She keeps focusing on earthly water, the material things of life, all right? He keeps trying to go this way. She goes this way. Watch how this happens. Give me a drink. Her response, uh, excuse me, sir, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, and we have this whole ethnic thing, and we're not supposed to be getting along or having a conversation right now, right? She focuses on the earthly stuff. He says, well, if you knew who I was and who was asking you for a glass of water, you'd ask me for some water, and I'd give it to you. Her response, you don't even have a bucket. I don't know how you're going to get this water you seem to be talking about. He goes one more time. Everyone who drinks from this water is going to be thirsty again, but I've got water that will last you for eternity. She comes over here and she says, hey, I'd love some of that because I don't want to come out here every day and, and, and get water out of this well. You're not following me, lady. So Jesus does what only Jesus knows how to do. He does one of those really cool things where he totally changes the flow of the conversation. Obviously, she's not tracking with him, so he does something to get her attention. He says, 
go call your husband. Her response, uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't. As a matter of fact, you've had five, and you're now living with a guy who's not your husband. Now he's got her attention. Oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Now she starts talking about spiritual things. Now she's tracking. Now he can lead her towards eternal water, and he can tell her what the good is there for her. Let me put pause for a second before we come back to that. Why in the world would Jesus say, go call your husband? Because he knows this woman is really thirsty. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places for a really long time. And she still doesn't have her thirst filled. Is there any controversy to being widowed and married and widowed and married? No, there's no controversy to that. Most likely, this woman's been divorced five times. We don't know exactly, maybe once, maybe three times. But let me tell you, she's got a DR, 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 DR stamped on her forehead. Are you with me? Oh, I lost DR. One more. Five of them. Now she's living with a guy. She's given up on marriage. She's just going to cohabiting because, you know, I don't know. Marriage doesn't last and love doesn't satisfy and da, 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 da. She is, she is ruined about a lot of things, but she's still thirsty. Jesus knows that about her. So he uses her family life to get her attention so he can talk to her about what's eternal. Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus will not hesitate to use the messed up dysfunctional pieces of your world to get your attention. He will not hesitate to let you deal with the consequences of your choices in your life and to bring that to your awareness about how dysfunctional that is. He will use that. But he doesn't bring up your past, your life, circumstances to make you feel ashamed to make you feel bad, to make you feel hopeless. He doesn't leave this woman in her shame about her life. He goes, look, let me tell you about living water. It's okay. Your past is not a problem for me. That's good news, right? Your past is not a problem for me. Would you quit worrying about being imperfect? Would you let God redeem your story? Look, this story that you're telling, you can't change. Woman at the well, you cannot change your story, but you can change the story you tell about your story. Let me say that again. You can't change your story, but you can tell, you can change the story you tell about your story. You can make it mean something different. How do we know? Because of what this woman does. She drinks from the living eternal water and she goes back into town and does what? Starts telling everybody, hey, I met this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. And they're like, oh, honey, we know what you've been doing. <laughs> We've been talking about you all day long, as a matter of fact. You're on the cover of People magazine. You do know this, right? And she's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I think it's okay. I think my past is not a problem for the Messiah. And the next thing you know, people are coming to meet Jesus. They want to get a little taste of this water because they're thirsty too. You know who the first evangelist was to the Samaritan people? You know who, you know who that was? A five-time divorcee who's living with a guy. What did she do? She quit worrying about her past. She let God redeem her story so that it becomes a testimony to what God is doing in her. She changed the story she tells about her story. Number three, she rests in that grace. She had the audacity to go, you know what? I'm going to claim that grace. I'm going to rest in that grace. And I'm going to be okay in that grace. I'm going to sit in it. And then I'm going to share this deliverance that I've received, delivered and redeemed. I'm going to share that with somebody else. That's what we need to be about today. 
If you're sitting here and you came in feeling unworthy, you came in the heat of the day to the well, and you're going, I just want to walk in and walk out, and I don't want anybody to know anything about my life. I'm here to tell you what you consider to be the worst part of you if you let Jesus give you some living water and you rest in his grace. What is the worst part of you becomes the best part of you. For somebody else who's over there hiding and feeling like they can't tell their story, but if you go first, they'll come. This is the church. It's who we are. It's what we have to offer. One more nugget about this story of the woman of the well. My favorite, favorite part. And then we'll close. Does anybody know the name of the well? And this whole conversation takes place by a well, where they get water. You know. Does anybody know the name of that well? Jacob's well. It's the well given to Jacob by his father. Dysfunctional Isaac, dysfunctional Jacob, dysfunctional family. It's a testimony to family dysfunction. A thousand years later, we have another woman who's a testimony to family dysfunction standing next to the well. That's a testimony of family dysfunction. And the message that God gave Jacob and Esau, look, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your past is not a problem for me, is the same message that this woman gets a thousand years later standing in the very same spot. Your past is not a problem for me. And here we stand 2,000 years later, right here at Jacob's well, and God's saying the same thing to us. Your past is not a problem for me. Shut up. Quit worrying about it. Rest in my grace. Go tell somebody. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It's a little bit different. Once you were dead, doomed forever because of your many sins. You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Following the passions and desires of our evil nature, we were born with an evil nature. We were under God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, and you can just hear this pause and the echo from the Old Testament coming in. Even though, Abraham, you were dead because of your sins and you were an imperfect husband. And Sarah, even though you didn't trust your husband, you laughed in the face of God and you took measures into your own hands. And Rebecca, even though you were a deceptive wife and mother who colluded against your own family members. Jacob, even though you stole from your brother and you mistreated your wives. And David, even though you committed murder. Samaritan woman, even though you knew your divorce attorney's phone number by heart. And, and, and Ron, even though you ne neglected your wife at times and chased turtles. Those who were here this weekend will know what I'm talking about. Even though you yelled at your kids and you made other people's approval of you, your idol, and even though you followed your own way so many times and walked in pride, even though you were passive as a father and you were dead in your sins, but God gave you life, Ephesians 2, and 
when he raised Christ from the dead. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly realms, all because we're one with Christ Jesus. And so God, I love this part, and so God can always point to us as examples. Oh, you mean he can point to me as an example of somebody who got it all right? No, he can point to us as examples of his incredible wealth and favor and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. God saved you by his special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things I've done. None of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. Masterpiece? We're God's masterpiece. Created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. Are you sitting here today with a less than perfect life, a less than perfect family? Welcome to the club. You are in the right place. Can God do anything with you and your messed up dysfunctional pieces of your life? I sure hope so. That's all he has to work with. Can he do something with it? Can he transform it? Can he change the story we tell about our story? Yes. As a matter of fact, he can turn it into a masterpiece. If you don't know this, you need to know this God. Let me introduce you to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ron. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for not letting our limitations and our inabilities keep you from working out your grace in us. God, would you please give us the ability to quit worrying about being imperfect to own it, to let you transform the meaning of that story, to rest in your grace so that we can use our own stories to tell others about you and bring them to the Savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.